Okay, everyone, so welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed the um, morning tea. So for this session, we are looking at different perspectives on Frankenstein. Uh, and these two speakers I'm particularly excited about, not that I wasn't excited about Lee and Jeff and Libby, of course, and the following other speakers, but this one's more towards my area. Uh, and so now that I've firmly put my foot into my mouth, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Harry Melkonen, and he's presenting a uh, paper on the tangled world of Frankenstein and the conflicts of uh, laws. I, I feel a little bit of a fish out of water here because I, this is not a literary approach at all. It's what might be called an instrumental approach, that is, of using the well-known Frankenstein story to accomplish something else entirely. Uh, I was very interested in when Lee mentioned that there is a recreation of what she actually wrote without Percy Shelley's uh, floral editions. I think that, personally, I think that might make a very popular book. Uh, I had never read the story, but I certainly had seen Boris Karloff. And when this project was announced, I went back and did, in fact, uh, read it, and I, I went through a bit of a, a journey, which these slides can uh, reflect, and uh, I concluded, like a number of other books, this is a novel that's more well-known than actually read. It reminded me of, Walden, of Thoreau's Walden, which is universally cited and almost never read out of philosophy departments. Uh, for somewhat the same reasons, excessively flowery language. Uh, as was mentioned, the great success of Frankenstein is that the underlying story is fantastic, and there's been so many films made about it, that everyone knows the story, at least to the degree that the films reflect the story. Um, and I looked at the scheme of the films, and they're all over the place, from the Boris Karloff films to, I uh, saw Alvin and the Chipmunks meet Frankenstein, which is probably the lowest denominator of the story. And I recall when I was in high school, the Monster Mash was a fairly popular dance, which is also based uh, on it. What I found fascinating, though, was the subtitle, which I had never known, The Modern Prometheus. And I found it quite telling that Percy Shelley's Prometheus Unbound is uh, written after Frankenstein. And uh, what I found was perhaps the most succinct explanation of the Prometheus story was from Goethe, written about 50 years earlier. And I just want to share this with you because I think it's, it's quite incredible. Uh, here I sit, forming men in my image, a race to resemble me, to suffer, to weep, to enjoy, to be glad, and never to heed you like me. What I wanted to do 
was put the Frankenstein story to work in a 21st century context to do something. Now, as someone who teaches law, one of our biggest problems in teaching law is that it is inherently a relatively boring subject. But in order to achieve the end result of becoming a lawyer, you have to do it. And it struck me that Frankenstein might just be, play a role, at least in what I teach, which is called conflict of, role, conflict of laws. And I apologize for this, but to give this paper, I do have to spend a few minutes explaining to you what conflict of laws is. This is an upper-level law course that law students frequently consider to be the bane of their education because it lends itself to academic exercises which are totally untethered to the practice of law. Now, we try to avoid that here. But it is, in fact, one of the most important subjects a law student can learn because you really can't learn it on the job because it's not really a subject. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of approaching a problem that somewhat separates lawyers from other professions in that good lawyers are agonizingly linear thinkers. It would be almost intolerable in any other setting to deal with people who cannot go from A to C without thoroughly discussing B, which is something that everyone already knows. Uh, but conflict of laws is part of teaching our students to start thinking like the lawyers they're going to be very quickly. What conflict of laws is, it's not law in the traditional sense of learning a subject. It's strictly procedural. Uh, we learn about the authority of a court to hear specific types of disputes. We learn about the choice of law that a court will apply to a dispute. And we think about the ability of a court to enforce its judgment through the police power of the state. And what I've chosen to do here today is looking at Frankenstein as a vehicle for learning choice of law. Though I can tell you it could be used for points one and three, too. Now, choice of law it asks the question, which nation's or state's law should govern a specific matter? I think we all recognize that the laws of states differ. The law of Germany on property is going to be somewhat different than the law of South Africa on property. What not everyone realizes is that in a courtroom, including our courthouse downtown, the Supreme Court of New South Wales may be conducting a trial according to the laws of the state of New York, or the laws of Queensland, or the laws of China. And I've, in fact, been in cases where that was done. So in this course, we're not learning 
what the law says, but what law? Why should the court downtown be listening to New York law? And it's a confusing formula that our students have to learn. They have to first identify the subject matter. Is it a personal injury? And they have to know the state where the dispute is pending. Is it pending in the Supreme Court of New South Wales, or is it pending in the High Court in London? And once they know this, they then can undergo an exercise to figure out which nation's law should be applied by the court. And I give this example, a personal injury matter being tried in New South Wales Supreme Court may be governed by the laws of New York. And yet that exact same dispute, if it's being heard in the city of New York, may be governed by the laws of Australia with significantly different results. The problem we have in teaching this is that the rules for knowing which law applies are not at all intuitive. They bear nothing to do with what would seem to be the right thing to do because every nation uses its own system. The Americans have built their system on modern legal philosophy, which no one else uses. Australia follows a very traditional British approach. Whereas Britain and all of the EU and most of the world follows rules derived from the Napoleonic Code. This subject takes everyone out of their comfort zone. If it takes you out of your comfort zone, it takes law students out too. Because it's all of, this is all so obscure and elusive. But when we look at examples and see how it can actually change the outcome, it becomes somewhat terrifying, too. In the years I've been teaching this here at Macquarie, I get the, I frequently find confusion and frustration is rampant. It sometimes even discourages students from pursuing this career. Students complain it's so artificial, it's contrived, and does it ever occur in real life? And yet it does. And this is where Frankenstein, after 200 years, can come to the rescue. Because it's well known, and it's an entertaining story at its most basic. And what I've tried to do is utilize this as a platform for teaching choice of law. Because within the story, there are all sorts of legal issues. The fact is, Victor Frankenstein's creature wrecks havoc across Europe, destroying property, causing injuries, and taking human life. As I put it, it's a veritable cornucopia of delights for a teacher of conflict of laws. It also helps show law students how to look at things in a very different way from everyone else. And I've made some assumptions. Under the law of the time, and particularly the law of Switzerland, 
Um, individuals can have responsibility for damage caused by wild or domestic animals under their ownership. And we're going to make the assumption that Frankenstein's creation would fall somewhere within this and would not be classified as an independent human being. And here's how we look at it from a whole new framework. Victor Frankenstein was a citizen and native of Geneva, and I've given the chapter citations, and this is how I read the story. The creature was assembled or created in Ingolstadt, Germany. In Germany, though it may have been France, it's not entirely clear, the creature terrifies an elderly man. Well, that's an offense, a civil offense. You can get damages for that. In Germany, the creature causes havoc and steals food. Well, stealing food, we're not talking criminal law, we're talking civil law. You owe money to someone for taking their food. And in Germany, he causes the Delacy's to abandon their home and forfeit three months' rent. Well, that's clearly measurable money. The creature kills William Frankenstein, a Swiss national in Switzerland, Justine Moritz is wrongly executed for this. The creature kills Henry Clerval in Ireland. The creature kills Elizabeth Frankenstein in Evian, France. What we are proposing is all of these victims or their estates now commence an action for damages against the estate of Victor Frankenstein who is a Swiss. We will assume that Victor Frankenstein's estate has substantial assets. The book reads like his family has money. The question we have is, if the estates of the victims commence a lawsuit in Switzerland for property damage, commercial loss, and personal injuries, including emotional distress or wrongful death occasioned by the monster or creature, which states or nations' laws will govern each element of the dispute. And we know we have connections with Switzerland, France, Germany, and Ireland. And the question is, whose law? And it gets real complicated. Switzerland is a civil law jurisdiction, unlike most of the world, governed by Napoleonic law. In a tort claim for personal injury or wrongful death, the law to be applied is the place where the damage took place. But under conflict of laws, we apply different laws to different elements of claims. We call this depassage. So we can have 20 different laws applying to different aspects of the same lawsuit. There could be German law and American law and Australian law relating to different pieces. Well, it gets, this is where we involve the students. You see, it gets more complicated. If we say, well, our Swiss court would apply the law of Ireland for the death of someone in Ireland, it doesn't answer it because we have, we have no shortage of doctrines in law. We now pull another doctrine from the French called Renvoi, where we say, oh, no, our judge in Geneva doesn't just say Irish law applies. 
Our judge in Geneva says, what law would a judge in Ireland apply? And the problem is Ireland comes from a whole different legal tradition than Switzerland and has a whole different bunch of choice of law rules. And they don't look for the place of the injury as they do in Switzerland. In Ireland, they would be looking at the place of the wrongful conduct. Now, where was that? I don't know. It might have been Ingolstadt, Germany, where he was created. Then again, it might have been Ireland, where the killing took place. You see how this little story starts dragging in legal question after legal question. And we don't end there, because we take that and we say, now we're going to really go to work. Let's make Victor Frankenstein a citizen of Australia. Same story, but now we look at what would the New South Wales Supreme Court do. And we go through the same exercise, but with all different rules. And our students have to start diagramming out all the claims with little arrows and look at the laws and seeing where it comes out. And the final complication is we put Victor Frankenstein in New York, which throws everyone because the Americans don't use rules like anyone else. Everyone else uses rules based on semi-intuitive things like where was someone hurt? Where did the wrongful thing happen? Where did someone live? And the Americans have thrown all that out. They said, we don't care. What we care about is which nation cares. It's a different frame of reference entirely. No longer focusing on people. And can we have radically different results? And students come to say, that depending on the place you happen to file the lawsuit can determine the outcome because of all these choice of law rules. And it's all in that Frankenstein story. And what's, we can keep it going. It doesn't end there. There's the underlying question of which national court should be hearing the claims in the first place. And ultimately, which national court has the ability to enforce a judgment? Because we have to learn, too, the police power of the state ends at the state's borders. And a judgment of the Supreme Court of New South Wales taken to the city of New York, people would look at it and say, well, where's the eagle? We see a kangaroo and an emu. There should be an eagle on top. And you realize that uh, you got a problem. And we look at all those things. And you can see how frustrating this can be from, from a student's viewpoint. Just all these different rules and everything playing at once. And usually using hypotheticals that are rather dreary. But if we take the Frankenstein story, even without people reading it, just seeing one of the, I'll call it better movies. They take, we take a, a provocative novel 
And I would say this, Mary Shelley created a far more engaging storyline than any law professor could write. Certainly better than anything I could come up with. And we just simply use her story. Preferably without Percy Shelley's uh, additions. Uh, we use that story. We take advantage of the familiarity and accessibility of it. And we let students use it and run with it to navigate this rather Byzantine world of conflict of laws. And I'll just close with this. If you say, am I actually going to do it? Well, as they say, stay tuned. The semester isn't over yet. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thank you, Harry Melkonian, for that. Uh, I will safely say I can never read Frankenstein the same way ever again, although I'm absolutely fascinated to look at it from that point of view because I just love puzzles. So that sounds like a puzzle that I, can, I would love to get my claws into, and I do hope that you, you teach it in that particular way. I think it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, next up, we have the lovely Kirsten Mills, who was just here earlier, and she's got a rather long title for me to read. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so she's going to be doing a presentation on Frankenstein in hyperspace, the return of 21st century digital technologies to the origins of virtual space in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. So, warm welcome for Kirsten. Thank you. Um, all right, thank you for having me, firstly. 200 years after its inception, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein remains a powerful and pervasive force across many different forms of media and popular culture. But the ways that we read and understand the original text, if at all, not to mention its complex philosophical, scientific and literary contexts, have changed drastically over the years. Most readers now are unavoidably informed by the 1931 and following film adaptations starring Boris Karloff, not to mention the multiple and ever-expanding set of intertextual references throughout modern literature and culture, from cartoons and comic books to cake, that all follow the same source with its emphasis on the secular creation of a scientific experiment gone wrong, monstrous green skin, neck bolts and all. Ways of reading the text have changed too, and as we emerge more fully into the digital age of cyberspace, virtual realities, and handheld technologies like smartphones and tablets, writers and designers have worked to adapt classic texts for this new arena. Drawing on our knowledge of Frankenstein's translation into cartoons and various forms of slightly unappealing desserts, we might expect that an adaptation of Frankenstein into the unique forms and functions of the 21st century smartphone app might follow a similarly monstrous treatment of Shelley's original text and bear little resemblance to it at all. On the other hand, could there be elements of our virtual realities and cyberspatial technologies that actually return us to some of the novel's most central concepts in a way that traditional printed versions of the novel no longer quite do for a 21st century audience? This is the question that I wish to explore today. And what follows is a brief taste of what is actually a chapter very shortly forthcoming in a volume called Global Frankenstein, which is edited by Carol Margaret Davison and Marie Mulvey Roberts and published by Palgrave Macmillan. So if you're interested at all by what you hear, you can find more on it there. Okay, in 2012, Inkle Studios and Profile Books published an app for smartphones that is actually what they call a digital book. Appropriately enough, a new kind of hybrid medium unleashed onto the world with their first title, Frankenstein. In this digital book, which very much challenges and expands traditional definitions of what a book should look and feel like, 
Writer Dave Morris has heavily adapted Shelley's novel and utilised the interactive touchscreen capabilities and other digital features of modern, modern technology to create an interactive narrative experience that allows the reader to direct and alter the narrative, choose your own adventure style, in response to questions or suggested responses posed at regular intervals throughout the text. For example, faced with the creature's sudden appearance within the glacial mountain landscape, potential options include berate this vile creature or, more placidly, reason with it. You can see how the different options open up quite different narrative pathways, though, of course, ultimately constrained to the overall plot of Shelley's novel. The creature will always be made. Mayhem will follow. At first glance, the digital realms of interactive, interface-based reading and its multiple narrative pathways might seem a far cry from Shelley's novel. The virtual, hypertextual spaces of digital technologies are commonly considered to be uniquely modern phenomena, and adaptations of classic texts into this format are therefore seen as radical departures from the original texts and the experience of reading them. However, a closer look reveals that 19th century writers as early as Mary Shelley were exploring similar kinds of spaces within their work, where the spatial construction of the narrative world is layered and multidimensional, including liminal overlapping spaces of the mind, alternative states of consciousness, and the supernatural as prototypical hyperspace. Likewise, within popular debates about the Gothic imagination, the act of reading these texts was bound up in a unique conception of space that actually prefigures the virtual reality of the digital age. I propose that rather than radically transforming the original text, it is precisely through the deployment of such virtual spaces that interactive digital adaptations paradoxically mark a return to the original text's central concerns, and at the same time create a virtual reading space that reflects 19th century understandings of higher dimensional experience. At the same time, we might consider the new form of the digital book as inherently Gothic in nature where its digital technology and interactive performance draw on the potential of virtuality to destabilize traditional organizations of space, the body in space, and the mind across spatial dimensions to grant the reader a gothic double existence as a simultaneously embodied and ghostly presence occupying multiple realms. At the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein, we look backwards and forwards, exhuming Frankenstein's long buried context while revealing their uncanny return within 21st century digital technologies. In the reading of the Frankenstein digital book, space operates in multiple interconnected and complex ways. The app is designed with rich graphics to resemble sheets of paper on which the narrative is printed. Layered over traditional Gothic tropes of ancient books, ghastly remnants from the grave, scientific instruments, and anatomical sketches, as if readers through the portal of their screens peer down onto Frankenstein's workbench. As chapters or sections are selected, the view pans across the, deck, the desk, which we see in full here, revealing yet more anatomical sketches, medical instruments, and incrementally expanding the visible space of the laboratory, a process that inevitably contributes to a powerful sense of both the limits of the visible world and the potential boundlessness of the invisible space that lies beyond it. Illustrations are taken from various sources, each at several stages of remove from the original scene. For example, the app uses digital photo manipulations of 19th century engravings of oil paintings of natural landscapes. The entire image embedded within yet more layers of digital illustration and viewed through the framing lens of the device's screen. If pictures represent windows into other worlds, then these worlds are layered within several levels of representation, creating a sense of infinitely receding, nested spaces that yet open out into vast landscapes beyond the visible frame, 
worlds within worlds. The illustrated maps contribute to a sense of navigation within these layered spaces and further the sense of more space available to unfold. The emerging sense of multiple narrative dimensions deepens as an interactive choices are made. The page-bearing narrative installments are followed by a stack of per further potential pages, each one bearing a different plot development for the reader to select. Only partly visible, each implies a potential narrative lying just outside the visible field. Once an option is selected, that page is pinned to the bottom of the previous one, extending the ongoing narrative world both diegetically and spatially, and assembling the body of the text part by part in a neat parallel with Frankenstein's authoring of the creature's body. Most interesting, however, is the sense of multiple spaces created when the other pages, the options not selected, fall away. What remains in their absence is an ever-increasing sense of ghost texts, potential worlds that yet remain hovering just outside the visible bounds of the story. The reading experience thus navigates a warren of potential storylines and narrative spaces, evoking a ghostly sense of the multidimensional in the paths not taken. The form of the digital book also complicates space by playing with the liminal space between text and reader. While the interactive narrative allows readers to participate as characters immersed in the story, the limited range of programmed options and the stylized presentation maintain a level of metafictive textuality that is hard to ignore. Readers therefore operate within a space suspended partway between the creative imagined world and its textual representation. It is a space characterized by duality. As well as hovering between positions of reader and character, the interactivity allows readers to adopt the persona of author in part, while their limited options maintain the reader position. This liminal positioning is mirrored at a physical level too. Virtual reality and other digital spaces have been thought of in the past as the realm of the disembodied mind, but interactive literature and games blur the boundaries of this space, calling the body back into action. The reader becomes suspended between the cognitive realm of the imagined narrative and the necessarily embodied physical process of reading and interacting with it. Such liminal constructions create a sense of multiple dimensions of spatial experience at the same time as they blur the boundaries between the real and virtual worlds in ways that recall Frankensteinian anxieties about the cybernetic merger of human and machine. In their liminal positioning between these states, readers uncannily enter the zone of the cyborg, with Frankenstein's creature the clear historical precedent. We can go still further. The images on the screen are two-dimensional, rendered artistically to appear three-dimensional, and by interacting with the images by touching the screen or turning a page, animated graphics are activated that render the image even more apparently three-dimensional. So what does this do to us as the reader? Uh, it affects our spatial positioning in interesting ways, placing us at a liminal junction between this two- and three-dimensional space and the world of our body, which is thereby rendered a higher-dimensional space. The real world thus becomes a kind of fourth dimension. And while the reader's body interacts with the visual representations on the screen, the reader hovers at the limits between these dimensional spaces, crossing over like a ghost from the embodied to the disembodied narrative realm. Indeed, as the reader's consciousness inhabits the mind of a character within the virtual world through the process of reading, the higher-dimensional reader becomes a spectral, possessing force within the space of the lower-dimensional world that they enter, mirroring late-19th-century spiritualist notions of higher-dimensional ghosts. This spectrality continues still further. While the reader experiences part one through the eyes of an unnamed character conversing with Frankenstein, Part two suddenly opens from the creature's perspective as it experiences its first sensations. 
The fact that the reader's consciousness is immersed in the sensory space of the creature's body is emphasized first by the focus on bodily sensations and then by the sudden and jarring switch to second-person narration, which refers at once to the creature and the reader as you. The reader is asked to inhabit the creature, to direct his actions and emotional responses. This reading experience creates a triple existence. The reader is at, is at once a reader experiencing a text, the monster from whose perspective they are reading, and also the author of this monster and his behavior, thus sharing in some ways the identity of Frankenstein. In this last pairing, the adaptation of course takes its cue from Shelley, for whom Frankenstein and the creature were inextricably linked. As Frankenstein says, the creature is his own spirit let loose from the grave. This cognitive positioning becomes even more complex later in part two when the creature slash reader is presented with four books from which to choose. Of course, each of these options not only opens up potential narrative pathways into alternative virtual worlds, but also suggests intertextual pathways that transcend the boundaries between books and mirror the collaged effect of the interface's graphic design, extending the layered textual worlds outwards. Most significantly, however, one of these books is Frankenstein's journal. And if this option is selected, the reader thereby inhabits the mind of the creature as he himself attempts to literally read the mind of his own author through Frankenstein's written words. The reader's position thereby becomes a curiously tautological one. The space of shared consciousness becomes eerily, uncannily reflective as the reader slips between creator, creature, and observer, eventually occupying all three positions at once while the doppelgangers become haunted by the third eerie presence of the reader themselves. So I know that was a lot, but the configuration of space in the app are really quite complex and fascinating. So the app has received generally favorable reviews, but the adaptation has so altered the original text that the more blunt reviews, such as this observer piece entitled, Digital Butchery Makes a Monster of Frankenstein, are perhaps understandable, even if the reviewer doesn't seem to like Shelley's original much either. The central objection here seems to be that the radically altered form of the digital book, its technological interactivity, renders it unfaithful to the original. However, aesthetic opinions aside, one thing these reviews overlook in their focus upon the formal differences between the digital book and the novel is the way that the virtual spaces evoked by these very differences actually mark a surprising return to some of the most central concerns of Shelley's text. In so doing, they evoke a conceptual world that more accurately reflects the original 19th century context in which Frankenstein would have been read and understood. The novel's scientific, philosophical, and moral questions have historically received the most critical attention, but what has often been overlooked is that these concerns are played out through its central exploration of a universe conceived as layered and multidimensional, and through its charting of events across the liminal planes of interaction between lower and higher dimensional spaces. In Shelley's novel, we can not only trace early incarnations of late 19th century hyperspace, but also the origins of the virtual spaces we now associate with modern digital technologies. These higher dimensional spaces are configured in multiple overlapping ways, but fall into two main types. Models that correspond to 19th century concepts of a real supernatural realm, and models of cognitive phenomena, where dreams, trance, madness, and other liminal states of consciousness occur within their own unique spaces, both within and yet beyond the confines of the brain, body, and natural world. Shelley explores these spatial models at both thematic and formal levels, traversing their margins through linguistic, symbolic, and physical doublings that complicate divisions between spaces and minds. So let's have a brief look at this, and like I said, more is in my chapter if you fancy it. 
Multidimensional space is first evoked in Shelley's deliberate contrast between enclosed and open, and inner and outer spaces. Perhaps paradoxically, Frankenstein situates the realm of human knowledge, intellectual rationality, and scientific endeavor within enclosed, claustrophobic spaces disconnected from the natural world. In addition to the charnel houses, rooms, dissecting room, and the slaughterhouse, Frankenstein pursues his scientific experiments, as Jeff earlier mentioned, in a solitary chamber, or rather cell, at the top of the house, separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and staircase. So that's a lot of separation from everywhere else. Kant famously linked reason with three-dimensional space, the limits of one implying the limits of the other. And it is against this assumption that Shelley's reduction of the three-dimensional realm of reason to enclosed spaces performs an extension of space, rendering that which falls outside, those vast open natural landscapes associated with the Burkean sublime, something other and beyond an extra fourth dimension placed literally outside the limits of human understanding. In these spaces, the natural becomes supernatural. The most extreme of these spaces, the immense mountains and precipices, suspended liminally between the earth and the heavens, are described as belonging to another earth, the habitations of another race of beings. A linguistic doubling that recalls Frankenstein's dying mother's wish to be reunited in another world. These are regions repeatedly related to death, and the ghostly is at home here. Frankenstein senses wandering spirits, the spirits of the dead, and the shades that wander near. Within this higher dimensional space, Shelley not only blurs the boundaries between Frankenstein and his creature as uncanny doppelgangers, but also fragments and multiplies space within the physical and ontological configuration of their individual minds and bodies. In contrast to 20th century cinematic adaptations, which evoke a distinctly corporeal monster, Shelley is emphatically vague in her physical descriptions, employing shifting Gothic terminologies characterized by indeterminacy and ambiguity to cast the creature instead as an embodied spirit positioned liminally between natural and supernatural worlds. Variously referred to as a spectre, demon, apparition, fiend, devil, and wretch, the creature thrives within the sublime, high-dimensional landscapes that signal death for the men that pursue him. His body also disturbs traditional separations between other categories and spaces. Despite his organic composition and, and autonomous consciousness, he is still technologically assembled, thereby straddling the boundary between nature and machine. He is neither human nor animal, and he is assembled from reanimated cadavers. He also straddles the borders of life and death. His body is a literal fusion of what were once multiple separate bodies, the spectres of which haunt his ontology, as well as fuel his own anguished questions about identity and belonging. His body becomes a space within which other bodies merge, their formerly whole bodies, human and animal, alive and dead, and accompanying souls both absent and yet uncannily present in the life that now animates the hybrid creature. Frankenstein likewise straddles multiple spaces at the boundary between natural and supernatural dimensions, becoming a double of the creature and thus sharing and adding yet another layer to the creature's fragmented spatial ontology. Increasingly referred to throughout the novel as a wretch and a restless spectre, Frankenstein repeatedly wanders like an evil spirit, just like the spectral wandering creature. However, complicating this doubling are the repeated suggestions that the lines between cognitive function, haunting, and supernatural possession are blurred. Frankenstein continually describes the act of thinking about the creature as possession, 
which renders his mind a contested space. And during these moments, Frankenstein begins to physically and psychologically mirror the creature. As one example, following Justine's death, Frankenstein describes his experiences of thinking about the creature. He said, when I thought of him, I gnashed my teeth, my eyes became inflamed, and I ardently wished to extinguish that life. Sound familiar? Such doublings signal a complex spatial arrangement in which the higher dimensional realm of the supernatural is utilized to span the separate mental and bodily domains of Frankenstein and creature, where the possession both preserves distinctions between their minds and yet also links them as multiply positioned interconnected aspects of the same being. Walton's early description of Frankenstein's double existence is here both spatially and ontologically apt. These configurations of overlapping mental spaces progress in the novel via 19th century discourses of madness as supernatural possession, occasioned when the space of the supernatural world overlapped with what was seen as a unique space opened up by dreams, trance, and especially nightmare. Following Clerval's death, Frankenstein states, memory brought madness with it, and when I thought on what had passed, a real insanity possessed me. Frankenstein becomes often insensible to his outer world, his eyes fixed and unobserving, and at one point he is possessed by a kind of nightmare. I felt the fiend's grasp in my neck and could not free myself from it. The closer Frankenstein gets to the limit between the natural and supernatural worlds, the more the spaces of his mind, as well as those of the physical world in which he wanders, become inverted, merging dream and reality, natural and supernatural, until these separate realms become impossible to distinguish. His waking hours within the possessed space of his conscious mind become like a dream, and pursuing his own spectral double is endured more as a task enjoined by heaven as the mechanical impulse of some power of which I was unconscious than as the ardent desire of my soul. Doubling the creature's ontological ambiguity between automata and autonomy, the space of Frankenstein's consciousness, now rendered unconscious through its possession and dreamlike qualities, is no longer his own. To the multiple enfolded spaces contained within her narrative world, Shelley adds yet another layer, drawing on these discourses of supernatural possession and liminal mental journeys to move beyond the text and incorporate her own mind as yet another spectral figure within the text. Referring several times to both Frankenstein and the creature as author, Shelley includes herself as a third participant in their uncanny doubling, traversing the borders between life and art and actual and imagined worlds to, to partake in their shared cognitive and spectral possession. The spatial layering is, in turn, deepened by the origin story included in her 1831 introduction, which posits the waking dream that inspired her narrative as a liminal space shared also by Frankenstein, who likewise experiences this vision within the novel, and the creature as the spectre and hideous phantom that haunted Shelley's mind. Once again, the liminal space of dreaming is opened up as a space within which to traverse the borders between minds, the natural and supernatural worlds, and even, in this instance, the worlds of author and text. Moreover, this spectral possession across multiple spatial dimensions is also extended to include the reader. In her use of triply nested narrative frames, Shelley renders the reader a ghostly possessing force from beyond the limits of the narrative world, who spans the minds of its already uncannily doubled characters. The haunting flows both ways. Our closest link to the story, Walton, becomes a medium, diegetically and spiritually, through which the thoughts of the deceased Frankenstein and his creature, and also by extension and the above spatial layering, Shelley, are conveyed to us. 
The fusion of psychological and supernatural worlds in the reading process reinforces the similarly interwoven spaces of the novel, drawing particular attention to the fluidity of the boundaries between embodied and disembodied minds across multiple spatial dimensions. Importantly, in constructing these multidimensional spatial models, Shelley draws on already established discourses surrounding late 18th and early 19th century concepts of the imagination, in which, much like the spaces of dreams and trance, the act of reading was thought to open up a liminal mental space both within and yet beyond the ordinary space of the mind and body, resulting in the reader occupying multiple spaces simultaneously. Anne Radcliffe famously described this idea when she wrote that the imagination, not content to be confined to the evidence of the senses of this earth, but eager to expand its faculties, soars after new wonders into a world of its own. Likewise, William Hazlitt describes the power of Shakespeare's tragedies to take possession of the mind and form a world by themselves. Such discourse was particularly relevant to the Gothic novels, which capitalized on the terrifying potential to conjure ghosts and other horrors within such a liminal space. The romantic linking of imagination and mental visions with other liminal states of consciousness, like dreams and trance, resulted in the unsettling implication that if the supernatural realm could be accessed via these cognitive spaces, then perhaps the ghosts conjured within the virtual worlds opened up by reading Gothic fiction constituted a real haunting. In this way, the 19th century reader of Frankenstein occupied multiple cognitive dimensions that prefigure the similar constructions of 21st century virtual realities. Shelley explicitly refers to these constructions in her novel. When contemplating the death of Henry Clerval, Frankenstein wonders, where does he now exist? Has this mind so replete with ideas, imaginations fanciful and magnificent, which formed a world whose existence depended on the life of its creator, perished? Does it now only exist in memory? These questions fold space into even further dimensions. Frankenstein's memory is, of course, itself an imagined world, opened up within or beyond the space of his mind, and it now also houses Clerval's imagined world, creating a series of nested mental spaces that not only span the borders between minds, but also those between the living and the dead. Like his earlier possession by memory of the creature and his dreaming encounters with the spirits of his dead family, in this complex layering of mental and supernatural spaces, memory constitutes spiritual possession. Frankenstein is both psychologically and literally haunted as Clerval's spirit still visits and consoles him. Moreover, these nested cognitive spaces correspond with and add yet another layer to those already nested mental spaces involved in the narrative frames, ensuring that Shelley's exploration of multiple dimensions of consciousness, from the disembodied mind of the reader to the ghostly spaces within, within the overlapping minds of herself and her characters, infuses both thematic and formal aspects of her novel. So in light of these complex spatial configurations, when Morris writes that his adaptation of Shelley's Frankenstein into the virtual spaces of 21st century digital technology is more akin to a translation than a retelling, he may be closer to the truth than he realizes. In its early thematic and formal representations of space as layered and multidimensional, Shelley's Frankenstein prefigures much of what we consider hallmarks of 21st century virtual worlds. In this way, the new textual and technological form of the digital book represents a return to, rather than a, de a departure from, the novel's original contexts, and reveals not only the Gothic nature of modern digital technology and its potential for enhancing Gothic narratives, but also one of the many ways that 200 years after its creation, Shelley's Frankenstein still haunts our liminal worlds. Thank you.
Thank you, Kirsten, for that. That was absolutely fascinating. I can safely say the inner geek in me is completely tickled by it, and the traditionalist in me is kind of going, don't know how I feel about that. So we've got about uh, 12 minutes to uh, field some questions. So does anybody have any specific questions they would like to ask either of our two guests? Okay, so while you guys are thinking, I've got actually a question for, for Kirsten. Um, so I was thinking actually about transmedia while you were speaking about that sort of transmedia uh, storytelling. Um, and you know, sort of that idea that um, different medias actually build on that story world um, of a original text. And in this case, that app that you're talking about is a, a form of transmedia, I suppose. It's sort of building on that world. Um, do you think it adds anything to that world, or do you think it actually can um, detract from some of that, that world? How do you feel about that? Thank you. I, some of the criticisms that the reviews level at the app um, in terms of its narrative structure, the experience uh, of accessing the story, we no longer get it in Shelley's words, which obviously detracts in, in some ways. A lot of the magic is, is the author's choice of, of language and how they write. Um, but as I was saying, I think the spatial construction and the, the new ways that we think about ourselves in relation to other dimensions and other identities um, and how to inhabit those sort of things, um, yeah, just, just recall some of those original contexts that, that a, a reader reading a traditional version of Frankenstein, the actual printed book, wouldn't pick up as much these days because we don't live in that same context anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. Thank you. All right. Okay. Um, just uh, thank you so much for your paper. It was really, really, really interesting. Um, I'll definitely have a look at that chapter. Um, I just was curious in terms of this sort of um, what surrounds the app in terms of you know how much is it? It's I mean it seems that it was it came out like 20, 000, 2011 or twenty twelve twenty twelve. Um, so it's been a while since it came out, and I was wondering like what is the continued reception of it? And then also that sort of promise of updates. Like has it been updated since? And then you mentioned that sort of choose your own adventure story is a kind of potential world that um, kind of builds or accumulates as you read. And I wondered if. Um, to a lesser extent, of course, that sort of promise of updating, considering it has, uh, you know, from 2012, mm. it's been a while, uh, long for a while, that promise of updating and what it brings, whether that's also a potential world that you kind of start being aware of as you have had the app for so long. Um, so, yeah, I was wondering if that's a potential. That's a really nice idea. Um, and I would have loved to put that in the chapter if we had a chat about that before. <laughs> um, I think that's another nice way to sort of the reader's awareness, like you said, of, of this um, potential for a new world, new spaces to be added as the app is updated. Um, there was an update of the app for this year, obviously with the 200th anniversary. And what they did was include um, an essay. It has all sorts of paratextual um, information included in the app. You can read Shelley's original, you know, through the, through the app as well. Um, and they included uh, an essay from Fiona Sampson, who wrote a biography of Shelley that came out this year. Um, so that, that was the only um, update that they really made. So I don't think they've utilised that potential yet. That would be exciting to keep the app fresh by updating the story. But having said that, I think they worked so hard on writing this. It, it would be such a hard thing to write, an interactive um, fiction like that. So, yeah, they haven't really done much with that. But hopefully in the future. Yeah. Great. Okay, Paul? Yeah, thanks, Kirsty. That was a very rich and stimulating paper. Um, 
It strikes me, and you're sort of hinting at this, that one of the things that links the original text to these digital experimentations is the Frankensteinian aesthetic, which is, I mean, you use the word assemblage, but it's an assemblage where the scars are still visible. Mm. So in a, in a sense, we're constantly being reminded of the heterogeneous nature of it. Um, so that's a kind of a very materialist aesthetic. Um, but you pointed out, and I mean, I think this is clear enough in the novel, that there's all this ghostly stuff as well, mm. right? Spectrality and, and so forth. So how does that kind of more immaterial stuff, I guess, fit in with this very highly material um, form of embodiment, scars and all? I think um, in many ways they're inseparable in the novel and in the act. Um, much like Frankenstein's creature, even though he's a, a spectre and a ghost, um, he's very much concerned with the boundaries between himself and others, like what makes him him? Um, why is he in this body? I have all sorts of theories about the science behind that. Um, but, yeah, I, I think um, it, it's, it's more in, in how we conceive of things. That's where the, the realm of the mind... Um, I think Shelley equates that a lot with the realm of the supernatural, obviously with the gothic potential of the imagination as a bridge between those spaces. Um, and I think it, we perform that same sort of um, awareness of our own spectrality when we're thinking and reading. Um, and, but like I was saying, that I think that the boundaries between the body and the mind are never quite separated um, in this interactivity. So it, so it is a very embodied material um, experience, but the very awareness of that materiality makes us aware of our spectrality, in a way. So it's, it's just this tautological game as we read. Yeah, and the reading experience, in a sense, supports that or yeah. fortifies it. Absolutely. Okay. Just, um, again, sorry, this question's again for Kirsten. Um, and thank you very much. Really rich and um, inspiring paper. Relating it back to some of the stuff that I'm talking about, obviously one of my interests in the narrative is the rendering of the narrative itself, the, the narration, the, the, um, the, the <coughs> embedded nature of the, the narrative frames, the relation between them and the way in which particular um, modes of being are called into, into existence through the acts of narration. And I'm just wondering to what extent this digital edition preserves or alters or changes that kind of framing um, position of the narrative and whether you have anything to say about that? Um, it, it, it adapts and translates it into a, a different way. So it doesn't replicate um, the, like Walton's letters, for example. Because uh, it seemed from when you put up the initial screens that those had gone missing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but we we don't experience the narrative um, from the same character's perspective in a linear function either. We do um, jump around, um, like you know, I mentioned. Mm -hmm. We um, start as an unnamed character conversing with Frankenstein, and we we challenge him on his opinions. And we, you know, there's an option where you can say, "What is that thing in the tank?" or "Let's go outside, and not talk about that." So um, you do that, and then and then you awaken the creature's body, and so that's a new experience. Um, and so I think we are invited to sort of question the same things that Shelley invites us to question about um, perspective and, and how identity forms narrative um, and changes 
who we empathise with, really, which is one of her biggest questions in the novel, isn't it? Is mm. we're empathising with the creature. Um, so I think mm. it, it plays with them in similar ways, but not it doesn't replicate them exactly. I mean, any adaptation or translation, however you want yeah. to characterise it, necessarily needs to alter the, the ways in which it does things. Yeah. I think it, it's been it's quite sensitively handled. Mm. Um, I don't agree with the reviews that say that it's been butchered, um, but I can see that I can see why there are objections. It is not the same text. It is not the same reading experience. But like I said, some of those differences actually return us to some of those contexts. Mm. So yeah, thank you. So while Steph's making a mad dash to Sebastian on the other side, I just have a quick question for Harry. Uh, if Frankenstein, uh, the creature that is, were, were taken to the international courts, which law would have jurisdiction over, over that? Which law would apply? Well, that's actually a, <clears throat> a question that students frequently ask, and the answer is uh, there is no such thing as an international court for civil disputes. There's only national courts. And national courts apply their own. So no easy answer. <laughs> right. There's no. There's no easy. There's no easy way. Not, not. Not. The. The last. The closest we came to a national court is uh, Napoleon's before the Battle of Waterloo. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Sebastian. Uh, this is also for for Kirsten. Uh, thank you for your paper. Um, you mentioned VR technology a lot in your in your talk, and I was just wondering if you think that. Uh, that's the next logical step is to have a VR game uh, of Frankenstein and if that's or other classic science fiction texts and if that's how you think that uh, modern audiences will be interacting uh, in that space in the future. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yes, I think um, obviously there's a huge rich potential, particularly in Gothic narrative, for translation. I mean, that's what the Gothic does. It adapts. It, it starts with central motifs and tropes and adapts those as it evolves over the century. And that's why we still have the same things today. We have, most of us know um, Frankenstein via the, the films, same with Dracula, um, werewolf mythology, things like that. We come at them through these iconic Hollywood films, basically. So I think in the same ways that um, the earliest, when some of the earliest films decided that the best text to try out with these films were these Gothic texts. I think the same thing, they, they still have this rich potential for translation into new forms of technology that become even more spectral and embodied. <laughs> Thank you. Can I just say something quickly? Sebastian and Emily are undergraduates who've given up a day of their break to come <laughs> into this conference, which I think is worth a round of applause in and of itself. Sorry for embarrassing you guys. This one's for Harry. Um, just wondering, considering I guess maybe a, a trend in the arts moving away from a, a humanism um, and, and simple concerns about what it is to maybe be a, a subject. Can do you, do you think that? And I understand you're just making a really interesting pedagogical uh, sort of argument and strategy. But so to sort of simply take uh, the monster as being property, bef uh, just as a base baseline to begin the argument. Um, do you think that it needs to be unpacked, like arguments as to why it can be property to, uh, to, to begin with and to somehow have uh, Frankenstein be responsible for something that's clearly agentic? Well, I, I think that that's a very good point, and it was one that I, I resolved simply by making an assumption because uh, it would be an, a major undertaking in and of itself, as you suggested, 
to uh, try to determine because from the text, you, you can't entirely determine that uh, from, the, from the literal text. And what I, I, what I did was I, I, I didn't just pull it out of the air. I took it back to, uh, again, the Napoleonic Christian Europe and how they would have been likely in 1818, it would have been complete heresy to suggest that this was actually a, a human. And it would either be some kind of machine property or, and I think it's probably a stretch in 1818 to say that it was fully animate, but at most it would be in the sense of like someone who keeps a wild animal as a pet, the law imposes some very strict legal obligations on keeping a wild animal as opposed to a dog or a cat or, or a horse. But you're correct, you could go all different uh, directions there, but I simply used 1818 and how people would be uh, thinking then and uh, trying not to run afoul of the ecclesiastical courts in the, in, in the process. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I think we have uh, time for just one more question. I think at the back there you had a question. Yeah. Thank you. Leading on from a gentleman down here's uh, question there about property. So Victor Frankenstein the monster, is that property or not? Also, looking at it from a vicarious liability perspective. So that's certainly a legal concept, which I'd imagine would have um, conflict of laws issues for you in that respect as well. Uh, yes, it would. And then it would start getting very difficult because uh, I'm not entirely certain of the history of when vicarious liability evolved. Um, I don't know if that's an industrial revolution uh, concept or not, but it would uh, it would certainly change the uh, the formulations even even more because the laws on vicarious vicarious liabilities being responsible for what someone else does, like an employer for their employee, is sometimes uh, responsible and sometimes not. Uh, the distinction we make and Rod, correct me, is if an employee does something bad in the normal course of their work, the employer is responsible. If the employee does something bad on their own frolic, so to speak, uh, the employer's not usually responsible. No, that's a, a controversial concept. We've dealt with it in the law. We have this problem, for example, of pest exterminators going into someone's home to exterminate rodents and instead sexually assault someone in the home. And the question is, was the pest exterminator acting in the course of the employment or was the pest exterminator doing something independent? And Rod, it, I believe the law is generally criminal conduct like that is outside of the employment. It's an interesting one because there's been a number of cases of vicarious liability of 
um, molestation of children in schools and the employer has been held to be vicariously liable for the teacher's actions in that respect. So, okay. yeah, so that's a criminal action and it's held to be within their employee, employee scope. So it's just interesting looking, looking at it from the uh, Frankenstein perspective. We could, Should we could be liable for Frankenstein's actions across Rod, Europe. give us a couple afternoons. We could completely ruin a great novel, couldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you for that. So can we just have another round of applause for two brilliant guests? Yeah. Thank you. And uh, lunch is served outside, so we'll see you guys after the break. Thank you.